Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Remember the theme of that song. It is exactly in the theme of the scriptures we'll be be beginning with this morning. Uh, I want to say that one of my greatest joys as a preacher is uh, to take hard to understand passages of scripture and bring them here, to find those obscure, lost, seldom preached passages of scripture, bring them here, make them understandable. That's my favorite thing to do. Um, I don't always do as good a job of that as I would like. I think sometimes uh, a lot of you still leave confused about the the passage and and what it meant, still with some questions. Today is not going to be like that. Today's passage is easy to understand. Everyone will leave knowing exactly what is asked of you. So how's that for money back guarantee? All right. So this week, uh, we're studying Old Testament prophets to see what, if anything, they can teach us about Jesus. Our series is called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. So we're going to start several hundred years before Jesus with the words of the prophet Isaiah. Brace yourself. Isaiah uh, does not have a happy message from God. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days of fasting, they are sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I'll not look. When you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sin out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Whoa, baby. That, wow. Wow. Now, my daughter and I are reading Genesis through Deuteronomy together. And uh, that is where God gave them all these worship practices. Why is he now saying that he doesn't like them in such strong language? And what does he want them to do instead? The answer comes very clearly in verse 17 and following. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. It's easy. If you want worship of God to be real, take care of justice. Make sure there is justice for the oppressed, for orphans, for widows. Then all those rituals that they did or that we do to get rid of sin will all have meaning again. So let's stay with Isaiah. Let's keep hearing Isaiah. Let's go to the end. Uh, Isaiah chapter 58. And listen, if you don't hear him say, if you really want to worship God, then seek justice. Isaiah 58. Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell the people, tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act 
so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves and and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? Ooh, let's read that again. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. See, it's easy. And Jesus agrees with the prophet Isaiah completely. In fact, Jesus begins his ministry reading from a scroll from Isaiah. Go to Luke chapter 4. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, Jesus went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Listen how clearly Jesus makes the call to justice. In this passage that I'm going to read from Matthew 25, listen how much he sounds himself like an Old Testament prophet. Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you. 
you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Now those things may be hard to do, but understanding what we're being asked to do is easy. It means when you have power, advantage, or opportunity, use it well. Now, I gave a money-back guarantee that we would all leave not confused today. So let me clarify a few things that I'm not saying. Don't misunderstand. This passage is not telling you how to vote. America is a place where we believe that every other American ought to have the opportunity to prosper. No one should be forcefully held back by anyone else. So in that way, America follows biblical principles and the words of the prophets. Now, how to do that? If you are a conservative American, you probably believe that everyone prospers best when normal market forces are allowed to operate because that develops grit and that rewards hard work. And you don't trust politicians with hardly any power because they are easily corrupted and will destroy people to enrich themselves if you let them meddle too much. If you are a liberal American, you probably believe that everyone prospers best when there are lots of controls on market forces to direct the flow of resources. Otherwise, that flow always tends to go toward those who already have money and power and who will destroy the weak to enrich themselves. You trust politicians a little bit more, enough to give them the power to make and keep those regulations, knowing that if they become corrupt, we have the power to vote them out. If you're a moderate American, you're somewhere in between. And that's the political argument that everyone is supposed to be having. Which strategy best gives everyone the opportunity to prosper? And these scriptures this morning do not settle that argument. They just say that everyone should be cared for. They don't tell us that the liberal answer will get it done. They don't tell us that the conservative answer will do it any better. The scriptures do say that when you have power, advantage, or opportunity, including the power to vote, that you should use it well. So let's not misunderstand. Let me tell you something else that I'm not saying. I'm not telling you to take part in tasteless, violent, destructive protests when you find that people are being oppressed. Now, I believe that protests, and I believe that demonstration could be very effective. The freedom of assembly is in the Bill of Rights. Our ability to protest is one of our greatest rights we don't cherish nearly enough and often squander, I think, squander foolishly. Now, if you really want your protest to change things, if you really want it to be effective, you, uh, I believe, must learn from the masters. There are some people who have mastered protests in our time. Gandhi, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., master protesters that changed things. Now, where did they learn their skills? 
Both of these men, including Gandhi, who wasn't even Christian, said they learned to protest from studying Jesus the Christ. See, let's talk protest. I've always wanted to do this. A good protest creates the perfect moment where evil is forced to take off its own mask and show that it is evil. For Jesus, the perfect moment was the crucifixion. Although people tried to set him up to do it, he never led a rebellion. Jesus didn't even speak at his own trial. Somehow they still found cause to spit on him, strike him, strip him, beat him, and nail him to the cross anyway. And by the time they got through all that, several people there were saying, wait a minute. The thief on the cross next to him said, wait a minute, I got what I deserve. He's not. The Roman soldier guarding the cross said, okay, surely this man was the son of God. And one third of the world today still looks at the crucifixion and says, wait a minute, I can see it so clearly now. The mask has been removed. The one on the cross is the good one and the one sentencing him to death are the evil ones. Now remember that Jesus' own follower, Peter, almost ruined the perfect moment. Because remember when Jesus was arrested, Peter whips out a sword and strikes the arresting officer, remember, slashing off part of his ear. What does Jesus say? He says, put that sword away. That's not what we're here for. And he heals the soldier, preserving the perfect moment. Because otherwise, the soldiers would have brought them back and said, see, see, We have to kill Jesus and the followers. Look how violent they are. Look at this guy's head. Jesus took that away. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. worked for years to create these perfect moments. You have to remember, and some of you were there, that white America was told, Southern police have to be more brutal. They have to take people out and lynch them because if the Negroes, as they were called back then, if the Negroes are allowed to congregate and demonstrate, if you ever allow them to organize, they will go on a murderous rampage of terror and there will be total chaos. And so everyone said, oh, well, I guess we have to be, uh, you know, a little violent here or there to to prevent a massive chaos of violence. That's what everyone was told. Then one afternoon in Selma, Alabama, On the Edwin Pettus Bridge, marchers trying to register black voters were attacked by state troopers in riot gear. They were gassed. They were struck with clubs. They were beaten with whips. Why were those there? They were ridden down by horses. They were bitten by police dogs. In response, the Reverend King's protesters knelt down, prayed, and sang hymns. And the whole thing was televised live to the entire nation. No one had to rely on anyone to spin it for them. They could watch it as it happened. How many of you were watching it that night in 1965 on your television? The whole nation in one moment saw the perfect moment and said, wait a minute. I can see it so clearly now. The mask is removed. The ones trying to vote are the good ones. And the ones trying to prevent them with violence are the evil ones. It was the perfect moment that changed things. The Voters' Right Act was written and signed by a southern president within a month or two. So when you protest... 
don't use vandalism, don't use violence, don't even use profanity or vulgar language that Jesus would never use. If you want to be a master protester who reflects the heart of God, if you want real change, if you want to follow Jesus, then follow Jesus. Create the perfect moment where evil is forced to unmask itself because otherwise, here's what happens. So you go out there, you've got a placard, you've got some, you know, vulgar language on your placard to be shocking, you know. People will call their kids over and say, now kids, come look at this. Now, they'll say to their kids, I don't like the powers of this world any better, you know, but but look at these protesters. Look how violent they are. Look how destructive they are. Look how vulgar they are. They're no better than the people they're protesting. So kids, that's why we're not going to change a thing. Because there's no good guys here. It's just a bunch of crazy people. So let's just keep things the way they are and go on about our business. Because there's no agents of peace in the world and no good guys to follow. No. Do not give them that. Leave violence, leave oppression, leave vulgarity to the enemies of the gospel so that this world will see that the powers of this world are the evil ones and the followers of Jesus who do nothing but stand and march with the oppressed are the good ones. These scriptures say when you have the opportunity to do real good, including the opportunity to protest against evil, use the techniques of the masters who learned it from the master Jesus. Again, I don't want anyone to leave confused about what's asked of us today. So here's something else that I'm not saying. I'm not saying to get on Facebook and Twitter today and fix everyone who's not following the words of Jesus and the prophets. I'm going to give this to you. That the people, you know, who are rubbing you the wrong way, so you're sending them articles, you're posting, you know, you're giving them likes. Well, they're not the ones rubbing you the wrong way. The people you're giving a little jab to, trying to remind them, you know. I'm going to give you this. They're probably wrong. I'll give that to you. They're probably conservative in ways that violate Scripture. They're probably liberal in ways that violate Scripture. But what is your jab or what is your reposted article doing? Maybe it's happened to you, but I have never seen it where somebody reads that and goes, oh, oh, my goodness, my heart has changed. I I was totally wrong. And, And you are totally right. I'm going to tell all 850 of my friends that I I had this wrong. I've I've just not seen it. Maybe you have. I have seen that response from people in personal conversations here in the church. See, the church has built into it ways that if you're constantly living in a way that violates scripture, eventually you will be confronted with that. Like in a sermon like today, like in a small group book that you're reading, like lunch with a person who says, hey, you keep saying this. Do you really, you really mean that? The church has that stuff built in. Is is social media getting it done? Here's what I see more often. I see people who are subjected to those jabs or those articles and they leave the church. And they go to another church where everyone thinks exactly like they do. You know, Isaiah is too conservative to be read in some churches. So they don't read it there. Isaiah is too liberal to be read in some churches. So they don't read it over there. So they can go to this other church where everyone thinks like them and they don't ever hear Isaiah. And nothing changes because we're all just hearing people who think just like us. All that's left to say after that is thank you, Scott. Okay, now Scott's not a real person. Scott is a character in a Saturday Night Live sketch 
which is your homework today. I want everyone to go look up Saturday Night Live, SNL. Thank you, Scott. I can't show it here because it's got a word in it that's not Sunday morning approved. But, uh, but that's your homework. If you use Facebook or Twitter, go watch Saturday Night Live's Thank You, Scott. And uh, it's funny, but it's got a, a point worth taking. These verses we're reading today do not tell us to trash people in a digital town square. It says when you have a real opportunity to use your real power, including your real voice, to change real things for real people, use it well and sound like Jesus. So now that we've gone on and on about what we aren't saying, not this, not this, not this, let's be clear about what we are saying. Here's what we are saying. When you have any kind of power or advantage or opportunity, use it as Jesus would. So 1983, 1984, I don't quite remember, but a man walked into the hiring office of the company my dad worked for. He was a black man. He was an engineer. Now, I don't know his story, but since we are not yet in the story 20 years from the Civil Rights Act, I'm going to bet this guy pulled off some major sacrifice. Somehow, as a black man in the 70s, he'd gotten himself through engineering school. He'd built up a resume doing some kind of work. He was ready to take the next step to work for a mid-sized machine shop that got both manufacturing and military contracts. This machine shop, proudest day his dad showed me the machine, that prepares the anti-tank armaments for the A-10 Warthog Tank Smasher, which is like my favorite military plane because the G.I. Joe Cobra Rattler is based upon its design. (laughs) And now you know, and knowing, that's right, you know you're at Lakeland when your uh, liturgical responses come from comic books. All right. Now, I'm guessing this man applying for this job, I'm just guessing, I never met him, but, but I, I bet, I'm guessing he had a family. And maybe as he left the house that day, a little girl said, Daddy, are you going to be an engineer now? And maybe he smiled nervously and said, well, I, I have to get the job first. And then he sat in the interview with my dad and my dad's bosses and some of the other guys. These guys have power, opportunity, and advantage. Will they use it rightly? We're going to come back to that story. Appropriate on, uh, when, you, when you have opportunity to take sides, the prophets and Jesus tell you clearly who to take sides with. Appropriate on Veterans Day to have a story from Afghanistan, 2011. Captain Daniel Quinn and Bronze Star for Valor recipient Sergeant Charles Martlin are both Green Berets. They can't sleep. They're in their bunks. They can't sleep. Because the sound of screaming and crying coming from the the neighboring Afghan local police bunker is keeping them awake. Captain uh, Quinn is on uh, FaceTime with his dad. He says, I can't sleep. I hear all this screaming coming from the Afghan local police base. His dad says, tell your superiors. You see, this is a joint base. Uh, They've kicked the Taliban out, and so now U.S. Army and Afghan local police occupy the same base. Their mission to keep the Taliban from coming back in this village, provide safety to all the the men and uh, women and children of this village. Most of them are widows because of the fighting. But all day long, the Afghan uh, police officers round up young boys from the village, and all night long, they take turns sexually abusing them in the most horrific ways. Captain Daniel, Quinn goes to get ta- Captain Daniel Quinn goes to his superiors, tells them what's happening, and their response is, we know. It's happening all over Afghanistan. It's their culture, and you can't interfere. 
He says, my mission is to provide safety for these women and children of this village and their own police force is kidnapping and abusing them. They said, it's their culture. You can't interfere. One day a mother from the village comes to the U.S. side of the base. She's beaten and bruised. She brings with her her 12-year-old son. He looks like a zombie. All the light is out of his eyes. He's walking with a limp. She explains that her son is the most handsome boy in the whole village, and that makes him a trophy for Afghan fighters. Every time a convoy rolls through, and it doesn't matter if it's the Taliban or the Afghan local police, they kidnap her son and hold him hostage and return him to her days or weeks later more shattered than before. She says most recently he's been taken captive by the current, uh, current police administrator in the next barrack over, and he was held for two weeks shackled to a bed. When she went and requested her son be returned, he ordered her to be beaten. Captain Quinn and Sergeant Martlin can't take it anymore. They go over to the Afghan local police base to have a chat with the, with the officer. The Afghan policeman admits that he kidnapped the boy, admits that he held him chained to a bed for two weeks, and admits that when the mother came and asked for him back, he had his brother beat her up. But he laughs it off and says, what's the big deal? It's just a boy. Captain Quinn and Sergeant Martlin snap. They body slam the Afghan local police officer. They body slam him a second time. They continue to body slam him for 50 yards until they expel him from the camp, throwing him off the base. For that, they are relieved of command and discharged from the United States Army and sent home. They go immediately to the New York Times and tell that story to any paper that will listen. If you find this story unbelievable, you may read it in the New York Times or any of the papers that have picked it up afterward. If you'd like a different viewpoint on the same subject, not that event, watch the movie The Kite Runner or read the book The Kite Runner. It was written by Khaled Hosseini, a native of Afghanistan. It was nominated for Best Foreign Film by Oscar and Golden Globe for depicting the child abuse that is endemic in Afghanistan. If we are going to break this global epidemic of organized child rape, we're going to need more whistleblowers in the military, in the government, in the church, and apparently in our entertainment industry as well. More people willing to lose their careers to save children. And let's not forget women. I want to say that two years ago, both of these officers were reinstated into the United States Army. This is easy. This is easy to understand. When you have power, when you have opportunity, when you have advantage to take sides, stand up for what is right. Listen to these words from Jesus. You've heard many times, but maybe you're going to hear them differently now. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. When you have the opportunity to do good, take it. Take it. Sometimes we don't realize just how much power, advantage, and opportunity we've been given until we take what we have been given and we hold it up to God and say, what would you want me to do with this, God, if I were to give it, offer it to you? I want to share with you this story of a well digger from Oklahoma, not oil well, water well. And what happened when he asked the question, of this skill you've given me, God, what do you want me to do with it? Watch this story. All right, so before we get started, I just want to make sure I've got all this straight. 
You planted underground churches in China. You traded wells to free pygmy slaves in the Congo. And now you're part of the biggest wall project in the world. And you did all of this out of your small pump shop in Oklahoma. How did all this happen? It's a long story. My wife Terry and I were living pretty conventional lives. We were an ordinary family, two kids, a dog, a cat. We'd worked at our water pump company, Pumps of Oklahoma, for our entire life. We were the experts on water pumps in Oklahoma. We pretty much had it locked in for the next 30 years on what exactly this was going to look like. Building the company, have a little bit extra money, and then just set our lives up for this easy glide path into retirement. One day, one of our customers came into the shop. He said, "Well, I just flew in from Taiwan." And I said, "What were you doing in Taiwan?" He goes, "Well, I was planting churches." And in the most sanctimonious voice and tone that I could muster, I said, "Well, I'd like to go on a mission trip sometime," knowing that I really didn't want to go on a mission trip ever. And he said, "So, Dick, you have solar power pumps. We could go into mainland China, and then we could go plant churches, and we could end up getting water to these people." It's scaring the heck out of me right now because I don't want to go to China and plant churches. I was just saying that because that's what church people do. Four months later, I'm in southern China in a really remote village. We're able to install two solar pumps where they've never had running water to see what happens when people get clean water, where little girls can go to school because there actually is sanitation facilities at their school,、it、transforms the whole community. When Dick got back, it was obvious that there was so much need in the world. God had placed us where we were, in the kind of business that we were in. We knew that it wasn't accidental. From that point on, the safe, easy glide path to retirement wasn't going to be there. So after one of our trips, we determined that solar pumps were too high tech. We needed to invent a new type of hand pump. And so I thought of my old college roommate Steve, and I hadn't talked to him in probably two years. I came in Monday morning, checked my voicemail, and it's Steve. And he goes, "Well, my pump went out in my granite shop." And I go,、well, "Forget that. I've been to China three times. I've been to Sierra Leone. I need help inventing a hand pump." We met for lunch, and I told him it had to be able to pump water 80 to 100 feet deep, be built in country, less than $100 in cost, and oh by the way, I needed it in three months. And、he goes, yeah, I'll start tomorrow. So Steve finds a drawing from Leonardo da Vinci from 1498. A couple days later, he finds a patent from England from 1675. He combines the two drawings, and we end up with the Access 1.2 hand pump, which is the pump that we're using today. And the cost is twenty dollars. At that point, we created a new manual drilling method made in country by the in-country people. We started training and mentoring teams all over the world. If we could help people start their own drilling businesses, their own pump repair businesses, as soon as they were trained, they would just take it from there and solve the water crisis in their communities. We said yes to every project that we came across, and we just kept seeing God show up in every place. 
Over the course of 10 years now, we've gotten water to a million people. We've drilled 3,200 wells. We've spoken at the United Nations. We're working on the largest freshwater project in the world, the 7,000 well project. We've been to 32 different countries. We have 350 business partners that we work with around the world every single day that get up and start drilling wells so they can feed their families, so they can be the solution to their own village's problems. Quite often, we ask ourselves, how did we get here? It all started just with saying yes to the things that were right in front of us, that are in our everyday life. The only reason it works is because God makes it work. He takes the little that you have and makes it much. What is the church for in this world? How does, how does this church, Lakeland Community, our church, the only one we can really do anything about, how do we obey the prophetic words of Jesus? To answer that, I want to tell you about a Nigerian pastor who asked his mentor the same question. He asked his mentor, how can our church change the politics of Nigeria? Now, that's one of the most corrupt governments on the planet. The older Nigerian pastor decided to answer by answering uh, with a question. He said, if a gang of robbers were electing a president, would they elect a righteous policeman or another robber like themselves? The young pastor said, of course, they would elect another robber like themselves. And his mentor said, there's your answer. He didn't understand how that was an answer to the question, how can this church change the politics in Nigeria until he thought about it for a while and then he figured it out. If he wanted to change the politics of Nigeria, he would have to change the corrupt hearts of enough Nigerians until they would stop voting for other corrupt men like themselves. That's what we're doing in our congregation every week. We're changing hearts until Lee Summit is changed. We're changing hearts until Jackson County is changed. We're changing hearts until the Kansas City Metro is changed. And we're praying that it happens in every small group. We're praying that it happens in every serving team. We're praying that it happens this morning while we're here in every other church in this town, in this county, in this state, in this country. We're praying every other church in the world is doing this with us, bringing about the kingdom of God. I believe we're going to change a few hearts right now. I really do. I believe we're going to change a few hearts right now. Some folks came in thinking one way about something, and they're going to leave thinking another way. Because in 1983, 84, a man walked in to a hiring office of a company my dad worked for. He was a black man. He was an engineer. He'd paid his dues. He'd done it right. This is America where if you work hard, your efforts will be rewarded. He interviewed well. He left the room. My dad said, well, that didn't take long. We get to go home early. My dad's boss says, what are you talking about? My dad pointed at the door. That guy, he has everything we're looking for. His boss said, yeah, but do you really want him living in your neighborhood? Send in the next one. Now, when this man goes home this night to tell his family he didn't get the job, What is he supposed to say to his children? 
But daddy, you went to school. You got good grades. You said if we went to school and we got good grades, that it would be recognized. But daddy, you worked at that little shop and you said if we are faithful with little things, God will put us in charge of large things. What happened, dad? What's he supposed to say? What's he supposed to say to continue to instill the values he's been trying to instill and the view of our country that he's been trying to promote? I pray three things. First, I hope that in this man's next interview, he was in a room full of real Christian men whose hearts had been changed by Christ. And I hope America worked the way it was supposed to for him. Second, I thank God for giving me the dad that I have. Because though he was too young and too low down on the ladder to change things that day, I can promise you as he has gotten older and crankier, he has not always been so quiet. And I know that he's hired men who found Jesus in prison and hired them into that shop upon their release. And I know he's hired people off the streets who walked in and said they'd sweep the floor for a paycheck. And some of them were lazy. And some of them didn't show up to work. And they got the right boot of Christian fellowship right back out the door. But some of them were great men that I got to learn from as they sat around and ate dinner with us at our dinner table. And third, I pray this week, when some of you have the opportunity, the position, the power, the advantage, the voice, the vote, I pray you will use it as Jesus would use it. I pray as you speak, as you are read, as you act, that people viewing that cannot tell the difference between you and Jesus Christ. This is what we are given to do. So say the prophets, so say the great prophet, our King Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the kingdom of God into which we are invited. Thank you to all those families who extend the invitation to Christ. That's what it's all about. It's what it's all about. You don't know what an invitation can do. Amen. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Let us stand together. And the Apostle Paul prayed that same prayer in Ephesians. So let's, let's leave on this word together today. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. A few uh, announcements. Uh, congregational meeting December 3rd after service to approve our budget. So that's right in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about. And if you would like to pray today for yourself, we have a prayer station up here that you can pray to lift things up to God. Also, there are the names of those who were slain uh, last Sunday outside San Antonio in the First Baptist Church. Um, and, you know, that's a town of 400 people and 28 of them died in the same moment. So that's going to be a difficult, difficult thing for that community. So their names are there if you would like to offer prayers for them. All right, take whatever you're given and give it to God this week. Amen. Go in peace.